So God didn't create evil. So don't blame him for it. Some people do. He's not the one who created evil. Because notice, in the beginning, when God made his universe and earth and everything on it, it was all very good. And then you come to Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3 opens with a serpent. All right? What did that serpent look like? I'm not sure. But uh, the description shows he's clearly it is clearly evil. And we know because he's calling God's word into question. You look at verse 1. It says he's asking this question. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So this serpent is being deceitful. He's being very devious. He's destructive. Because what did God really say? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 17. God had said that the day you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. That's what God said. But notice how, how the serpent is being deceitful. He's twisting and bringing into question God's word. And so the serpent says in verse 4, you will not surely die. Well, that's a direct contradiction to what God had said. And it goes on, for God knows, he says, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. What's the serpent doing? Well, Jesus put it this way. Jesus said that that serpent was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Jesus mentions in John 8, verse 44 here, that he was a murderer from the beginning. And has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, if you know your scriptures, you'll know who this serpent is, but let me just bear with me if you already know. But who is the serpent, and how would, if, if an unbeliever or a young believer says, who, who or what is that serpent, how would you explain to them who the serpent is well the fullest answer best answer that i know of is in revelation chapter 12 verse 9 again we got a lot of scriptures so i've put them on the screen here for you uh, but revelation 12 9 says the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and satan the deceiver of the whole world he was thrown down to the earth and his angels thrown down with him so notice uh, the Holy Spirit is connecting the, the great dragon with the ancient serpent. Who is the ancient serpent? Revelation 12.9 says it is the devil and Satan. So the devil and Satan obviously being the same being. So that serpent in the garden we see in Genesis 3 is Satan or the devil. Jesus called him the ruler of this world. The Pharisees called him Beelzebul, the prince of demons. The Apostle Paul called him the god of this age. He goes by many titles, many names. So the one that we meet in Genesis 3 is Satan, the devil. And when we meet him in Genesis 3 as that serpent there, he's already evil, he's already a deceiver. He's already a murderer when he appears there in the Garden of Eden. So in verse 15 of Genesis, chapter 3, 
Notice God speaks to the serpent and he pronounces judgment on the serpent. Look what God says, Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice when you, when you look at that verse, Genesis 3.15. At first, it looks like the warfare is going to be between two offspring. Between your offspring and her offspring. If you're not reading carefully and observing the text properly, you might, you might come to that conclusion. But notice in the next word, something different is, is said there in Genesis 3.15. It says, he, not your, he shall bruise your head. So who is the he? Well, the answer is the woman's offspring. And who is the your of Genesis 3.15? Well, that's the serpent. The serpent himself. It's not his offspring, but the serpent himself. So, there, so the, uh, anyway, some have called that the, uh, the first account of the, of the gospel. We get a, we get a picture of what's going to come in scripture. So the Bible says that Satan is going to be crushed. So how is Satan going to be crushed? Well, God says the day is coming when Satan is going to be defeated and and he's going to be removed from the earth. (laughs) I can't wait. Looking forward to that day. But the offspring of this woman is it will crush Satan. And that decisive blow was struck by the perfect offspring of the woman, which, of course, you read through the Scriptures, you'll find out It's Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he crushed Satan. And this is one of the reasons why the eternal Son of God had to become a man. And because it was, as as Scripture says right here in Genesis 3.15, it's the offspring of the woman that crushes Satan. You see this idea uh, kind, of, kind of flowing through Scripture. For example, one of my favorites is in Colossians 2, verse 14, where it describes what God did for those who trust in His Son. So when Jesus died on the cross, notice what Colossians 2, 14 here says. It says that uh, the record of debt that stood against us, He set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and He put them to open shame. How? By triumphing over them in Him, in Christ. So when Christ died for your sins, Satan, it says, was disarmed, and Satan was defeated. So the the one eternally destructive weapon that Satan had was stripped from his hand. You say, what, what, what weapon is that? Well, it's the accusations that he brings before God. You know, the Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, of, of believers, and he, he's, he's able to come before God's throne, just like he does with Job. You read Job, you'll see how he does that very thing. And so he accuses the brethren, the believers, before God. He says, that so-and-so is guilty, you're guilty. You need to perish because of your sin, right? The Bible, and, and Satan probably quotes Scripture to God, right? The Bible says, the wages of sin is death, so so-and-so deserves to die. 
though he might make those kind of accusations. And so when Christ died, those accusations then became worthless. All those who entrust themselves to Christ, the Bible says, will never perish. So Satan can't separate anybody from the love of God in Christ. Well, the question then cries out for an answer here. Where did Satan come from? Where did Satan come from? You read Genesis 3, he just, poof, he's there, right? You don't, you don't see anything about Satan in Genesis 1 or chapter 2, right? So where did he come from? And, and by the way, why does God tolerate this guy anyway? You ever thought about that? Why, why is he, why is he tolerate? He's there. Well, in Genesis, he just appears. And so between the, this description we see in chapter 1, verse 33, that, that all of creation is very good, and then, so, so obviously Satan's not there at that point. And then you get, you come to chapter three, you have the appearance of evil himself. So obviously between chapter one and, and three, something's happened. So the good creation, of course, was corrupted. And here's where reading other parts of your scriptures will help you to interpret scripture itself. Scripture's its own best commentary, if you will. So in, in Jude and in second Peter, it gives us clues what happened between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. Well, Jude 1 verse 6 says this on the screen. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Notice the phrase, they didn't stay within their own position. Their position of authority. God gave them a position of authority. But they didn't want to stay in that. And, and the companion passage in 2 Peter 2, 4 says this, that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So it seems their sin is basically rebellion, insurrection, of course, Isaiah says, you know, Satan's sin was pride. But uh, what about the other angels? They, they desired more power. They desired more authority than, than God had actually given them. And so Satan originates, of course, as a created angel. He's not eternal. He did have a beginning. So he's, he's like the other angels. But he rebelled against God. And he rejects God as his all-satisfying king. For whatever reason, he chooses to be his own king. And so he sets out on his own course, doing his own thing, his way, exalting himself. He didn't want to subordinate himself to God, and other angels followed Satan. That's where we get the demons. They wanted to have authority over themselves and exalt themselves above God. That's what Scripture says. And so if you wonder where does Satan come from, God didn't make Satan. God made Lucifer. He's a perfect being, an angel who rebelled against God. Well, then the next question is this. Why did Satan rebel against God? Why? Or why did Lucifer rebel against God? I mean, how could that happen? Well, it's not an easy answer, my friends. In fact, the ultimate biblical answer to this question actually is going to bring up more questions. 
which, in the, at least in this life, we're not going to be, be able to answer. And, and so it seems that, in at least in this age, the Bible says we know in part. We don't know everything. We only know in part, the Bible says. And some people find interesting answers when they think about this. Some people find help in the answer, well, the, see, the angels had a free will. That's what some Christians say. So the angels had a free will, and, and God couldn't exert himself uh, enough. He couldn't exert his influence enough over these angels to stop them from rebelling. Well, that's what some people say. But I, I don't actually find that particular belief helpful. It doesn't really answer the question of why would a perfectly holy angel like Lucifer, who is in God's perfect place, he's, he's in the beautiful presence of God in a perfect place, why would he use his free will to suddenly hate God? That doesn't make sense, does it? And so this idea that God was somehow helpless to prevent this rebellion taking place in heaven and that it, it's owing to some uh, you know, self-determining will of these sinless angels is really not a solution to the problem. It doesn't account for why perfect holy beings would use their free wills to despise what they were actually created to do. And it doesn't fit with what the rest of the Bible says about God's rule over the devil either. And so the answer to the origin of Satan's sin is found by reading your whole Bible with this question in mind. Here's the question, my friends. How does God relate to Satan's will? Satan has a will, just like you have a will. Every human being has a will. So that's the question. Is God somehow helpless before the will of evil powers? Or is God presented through the Bible as having the right and the power to restrain Satan anytime he pleases? Do you see the, the conundrum there? And by the way, if so, why doesn't God just destroy Satan? Well, those are very important questions you might be asking. So, Let's, let's just look at lots of different scriptures here and see if we can answer these questions. What does the Bible say? Is God in control of Satan? Very important question. Is God in control of Satan? Or is Satan in control of his own will? Well, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, first of all, that Satan is called the ruler of this world. But even though he's called the ruler of this world, uh, here's where some other scriptures might be helpful. Like, for example, Daniel 4.17 says, The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes. Psalm 33 verse 10 says, The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart from generation to generation. So yes, even though Satan is called the ruler of this world, take note, my friends, he is only a ruler. A ruler of this world. He is not the ultimate ruler of this world. Because the ultimate ruler of your life and this entire universe is God. 
Okay, so is God in control of Satan? Well, let's look at some other scriptures. Hopefully, I'll answer this question. When Jesus lived on this earth, there were unclean spirits, the Bible says. And even though these unclean spirits are everywhere, and they're deceptive and doing murderous things, the Bible says Jesus had all authority and continues to have all authority over them. For example, look at this, Mark one twenty seven says that he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Who do they obey? They obey Jesus. So when Christ commands the devil, the devil obeys. Let's think of some other scriptures. And, and you take all these scriptures together, I hope you get a very powerful argument here, but... We see Peter talks about Satan as a roaring lion. He's like a roaring lion. What is he doing? He's prowling. He's doing what lions do, seeking to devour. Peter said, what do you, how do you deal with this, this lion, this, this Satan? He says, you resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. That's 1 Peter 5. In other words, notice what Peter says, that suffering is the way that Satan is trying to devour you. He can use suffering to devour you, to destroy you. But Peter also says in verse 17, it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So my friends, did, did, did you hear that in verse 17? The Bible says, verse 17, if God should will it so. So therefore, this suffering, you, you might call it the, the jaws of the lion, if you will, are, are opened and closed only according to God's will. God is using Satan in our suffering to accomplish his purposes. So yes, Satan is a murderer from the beginning. Jesus said so in John 8. But he's, he's taken the gift of life out of the hand. Well, has he? Has he taken the gift of life out of the hand of the giver? The Bible says no. No, he has not. Yes, Satan is a murderer from the beginning. But who's in control of life? Well, Deuteronomy 32, 39 here says, See now that I, I am he. Can you turn to Deuteronomy 32, 39 there, please? Here's God speaking. See now that I, I am He, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Well, James says kind of a similar thought. James 4, verse 15, he says, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Notice notice James 4 does not say if Satan wills or if you will. It says the Lord wills. So we, we will live, we will do this, we will do that because it's the Lord who gives and it is the Lord who takes away. One of the most helpful passages for me has got to be Job 
when Satan was aiming to destroy Job and, and really attacking God, was what he's really getting at, right? He wanted to prove that God was not Job's greatest treasure. What does he have to do to, in order to prove that God is not Job's treasure? He has to go to God, he has to get permission from God before he can even attack Job's possessions. Before he can come after Job's sheep and his donkeys and his cattle and Job's servants and Job's family, he has to get permission from God first. Before he can even attack all those things, he had to go get permission from God to give Job sickness. So in Job chapter 1, verse 12, God says this, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So God told Satan, You have my permission to attack Job. But notice God puts Satan on a leash. <laughs> he can only go so far. You're not going to go beyond the bounds that I set. God says to Job, or to Satan. So Satan could only go as far as God permitted him to go. That's helpful. It shows that God is in control and not Satan. We also see in Scripture that Satan is the great tempter. He wants us to sin. He doesn't want you to love God and serve God. And it's interesting in Luke that uh, Luke tells us that Satan was behind Peter's three denials of Christ. And he tempted him to deny Jesus. But could he do that without God's permission? Ooh, now this starts to get a little sticky. Who, who's responsible for your sin? <laughs> All right, Peter denying Christ was clearly sinful. Uh, I want you to, to see what Jesus says to Peter in Luke chapter 22. Pay attention to the words here. Luke 22, verse 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Who's coming to get permission again? Satan's coming to get permission to attack Peter. Ultimately, he's trying to attack God, isn't he? But look what Jesus says. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, Peter, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Satan couldn't do what he wished with Peter without God's permission. And when he had God's permission, God sets a boundary, doesn't he? Again, just like he does with Job. What's the boundary here? The boundary is that Satan is not going to destroy Peter. You're, you're only going to make Peter stumble. Peter did deny Christ three times. He stumbles, but he doesn't lose his faith. And so notice, it, it, Jesus says to Peter, when you have turned again. Interesting. Interesting. It's not if you turn, strengthen your brothers. Jesus says, when you have turned, when you've repented, when you've come back to me, strengthen your brothers. So it's Jesus, not Satan here, that is in control. Satan's allowed to only go so far, 
and he can't go any farther because he's not in control. Another interesting passage is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. But in, uh, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, notice what he says there. He says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So who's the God of this world? Or a God of this world? That's Satan. But let me ask you this. Is this power to blind people an ultimate power? Is it an ultimate power? Can God overcome it? Can God resist this power? Can God nullify this power? Of course He can is the answer, by the way. Of course He can, and He does. Because look at verse 6. Look what God does in verse 6. It says, God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what Scripture says. So in other words, the blinding effect of Satan here gives way to God's light. When God says, let there be light, can the darkness stop? Can darkness stop it? When God says, let there be light, the answer is no. No darkness can stop it when God says, let there be light. So who's in control? God is, not Satan. Well, my next question for you to consider is this. Does God control Satan's every move? Does everything that Satan thinks and does and so forth, everywhere he goes, is he, is he like a pawn in God's chess match? <laughs> well, my conclusion is when you read Scripture, read the Bible from cover to cover, the whole thing... It presents God as governing Satan and the demons. He has the right and the power to restrain them at any time that He pleases. So, my conclusion is this, all right? My conclusion is this. Notice I said my conclusion is that God permitted Satan's fall, not because God was somehow helpless to stop it, Nowhere does Scripture say that God's helpless to stop this. But God permits this because He has a purpose in Satan's fall. Since God is never taken off guard, he's, uh, His permissions then have a purpose, right? If He chooses to permit something, he, he does so for a reason, and of course it's an infinitely wise reason in what He does. And so... How, how that sin of pride arose in Satan's heart, Scripture doesn't tell us. It just says it does. But how, how did that happen? I, I don't know. God hasn't seemed to tell us as far as I know. But what we do know is that God is sovereign over Satan. Therefore, Satan's will does not move without God's permission. And therefore, every move of Satan is part of God's overall purpose and plan. And by the way, this is true in such a way that God is still perfect. God is still sinless. God never sins. He's not the author of sin. 
I don't know if I can fully explain all that, okay? But that's what Scripture says. God never sins. God is infinitely holy. He's infinitely mighty. Satan is evil. And Satan is under the all-governing wisdom of God. Those go together. And they don't contradict each other. And so then you might ask, well, why does God not then just destroy Satan? If he's in control and he could destroy Satan, why doesn't he just do it? Why does God simply not just wipe Satan out? You ever thought about that? Why is he here on planet Earth, messing around, doing his evil business? He has the right and the power to do this. Well, we read earlier from Revelation 20, verse 10, which says that God is going to wipe him out and take care of him. He is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. So why didn't he just cast him into the lake of fire the day he rebelled against God? Why let Satan just go on his rampages throughout human history? <laughs> well, the ultimate answer is found in Colossians 1.16. Of course, Colossians 1 is, is talking about Jesus Christ. I hope you're familiar with that verse in Colossians 1.16. It says, all things, by the way, that includes Satan or Lucifer, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. So who creates all things? Who's the creator of the universe? Jesus Christ. Why were they created? For Jesus Christ. <laughs> So Jesus Christ will be, therefore, more highly honored, more exalted, more glorified. Because He's going to have a great victory one day. He's going to defeat a very powerful foe. But He didn't do it immediately. He's very long-suffering. He's patient. He's humble. He's suffered under His hand and even died So, there must be a purpose in that. The glory of Christ reaches its climax in the obedient sacrifice of Christ on the cross when, when He did crush the head of the serpent and He triumphed over the devil. I love what John 13 here says. Here's what Jesus said in John 13, 31. Now in my final hour is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. Paul said it this way in Corinthians. He said, we preach Christ crucified. The power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus said to the Apostle Paul when he was talking about this thorn in his flesh, that was uh, like in, it was afflicting Paul in some way or another. The Bible says that my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, I'm going to glory in this thorn in my flesh. God's making me weak so that He is strong. That's what God's doing. And so Satan and, and, and all of his pain that he brings and his evilness serves in the end to magnify God. It, uh, it shows Him to be powerful. It shows His wisdom, His love, His grace, His mercy, His patience, and it's going to show His wrath as well one day. And so we would not know God to the fullest extent 
if we didn't see God defeating Satan as he does. So how do we relate to evil? There is evil. There is evil in this universe. How do we relate to it? Well, this is a very practical question. How do we relate to evil? We, We all experience evil. How should we think and feel and act about satanic evil in particular? And what about the evil you confront in your own life? Well, the Bible gives us eight things to do with evil. If you, if you had a concordance and looked up evil, evil, you would see these things, alright? What do you do with evil? I'm gonna give you four things to never do. But what do you do with evil? First of all, you need to expect evil. Alright? Just, just expect evil. You live in a fallen world. Alright? Read Genesis 3 again. Alright? I'm just gonna quote these scriptures. Let scripture kind of speak for itself here. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 4.12. He said, do not be surprised. In other words, expect evil. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But don't think it's strange. Don't be surprised. You need to expect it. Number two, the Bible says you need to endure evil. Endure evil. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That includes evil. You're to endure evil. And number three, the Bible says give thanks. Give thanks for what? For evil? (laughs) Uh, Give thanks for the the refining effect of evil that, that God is using in your life. I don't think we're supposed to necessarily give thanks for the evil, okay? But what God is doing in your life through the evil, all right? For example, the Bible says in Ephesians 5, 20, Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it says for, you give thanks for everything. So that means even the painful things, the trials and, and the suffering, hard as that is, we're to give thanks for that. Number four, the Bible says you're to hate evil. Hate evil. Romans 12.9 says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So the idea of abhor what is evil is, in other words, I've just changed it to my own words. You hate it. You're not supposed to like it. So if it bothers you, and you see evil on the news, or you read about it, or happens in your life and, you know, that causes you to uh, weep, that's normal. You're supposed to hate it. And then number five, pray for escape from evil. Uh, Jesus put it this way in his model prayer when he was he was teaching us how to pray in Matthew 6.13. He said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Don't be one of those fatalists and just, well, God's in control. I don't need to pray. No, Jesus actually said pray for deliverance from evil. Now, he may may not answer that prayer, but you're supposed to pray for deliverance from evil. And number six, expose evil. 
expose it. Well, here's how Ephesians 5.11 says it. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Don't, don't let them hide. Uncover them. And certainly don't take part in it, but you're to expose them, reveal them for what it really is. And then number seven, overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Right? Whenever you put something off, you have to put something on in its place of like kind. Our, our temptation is to respond with more evilness, right? That's, that's not putting off. All right? Put off the evil. Put on good in its place. And then number eight, resist evil, the Bible says. James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, by the way, don't, don't attempt that in your own strength. Uh, it says we are to submit ourselves to God in that context as well. So resist it. Don't give in. You're in a battle. You're in warfare. Uh, you have an enemy who is real and powerful. Take, take him seriously. All right, so here's four things never to do. Those are the things you should be doing, but four things you should never do according to the Scripture in, in regard to evil. Number one, never despair. Never despair about what? That this evil world is out of God's control. Oh, it's not. Because look what Ephesians 1.11 says. It says that He that works all things according to what? The counsel of His will. And by the way, that's not Satan's will. That's, that's God's will. He's doing it according to His will. And it's all things, not some things, all things. So don't despair, my friends. God hasn't lost control. Number two, never give in to this sense of, of just random evilness taking place that, you know, that's just absurd. It, it's, it, you know, life, it becomes meaningless. So never give in to the sense that because of some random evil, life is absurd, therefore, and meaningless. That is certainly not the case. Romans 11.33 says this, How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Verse 36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. So what's the appropriate response? Don't give in to the sense that because of random evil, that your life or anybody else's life is, is somehow meaningless. No. Number three, never yield to the thought that God sins. He doesn't. He can't sin. Uh, don't give in to the thought that God is unjust or God is unrighteous in the way that He governs His universe. That's the temptation you've probably had when something bad happens or something you don't understand somebody dies or your children rebels or you know who knows you have financial setback or whatever it might be that's our temptation but look what the bible says here in psalm 145 verse 17 it says the lord is righteous in how many of his ways in all his ways all of them so don't don't yield your thoughts 
to unbelief. It's, it's unbelief, which is really the root to, to our, our sin is unbelief. So you have to correct the unbelief with what is true. Like Psalm 145, what's true about God? The Lord is righteous in all his ways. <laughs> right? You've got to keep preaching that to yourself. Otherwise, you'll end up yielding and saying that God has sinned or he's unjust, uh, his ways are unrighteous. No, he's not. And then last, number four, never doubt that God is totally for you in Christ. God is for you. So if you trust Him with your life, the Bible says you are in Christ. And so you, there's all kinds of verses that talk about being in Christ, like Romans 8, 1, for example. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? You're in Christ. You're a believer. You're saved. You're under the blood of Christ. And so therefore, never doubt that all the evil that befalls you, and by the way, even if it takes your very life, that... Never doubt that God loves you. He is purifying you. He's saving you. He's, 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 he might be disciplining you. Like this next passage we see here in Hebrews 12. He is a loving father who disciplines his children. So if you're being disciplined, it shows you're one of his children. And so, the, please understand, this is not an expression of His punishment or His His wrath upon you. This discipline is an expression of His love for you. He's actually for you. Look what it says in Hebrews 12.6. It says, The Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Do you believe that? You really believe that? So if he loves you, he's for you, he might bring hard times into your life to accomplish that purpose. And so you have to believe when you're going through that very difficult chastisement or, or discipline that God loves me. I'm one of his children. That's why I'm going through this. There's a purpose for this. It's not meaningless. And so, my friends, when we reject the designs of the devil and we choose to put that off and then trust in God, you know what you're doing? You're actually fulfilling God's purposes. You're, you're not letting Satan win. God wins. And so, we fulfill God's purpose then in also allowing Satan to live. We're glorifying the, the infinitely superior worth of Jesus Christ in the process. Your very life and how you respond glorifies God. And so, my friends, I invite you to trust Him, to stand in awe of Him as He then saves you and in the process defeats Satan. Don't allow your life, your responses, to glorify Satan. May our responses, as individual Christians, as well as a corporate body, may the church bring glory to God as we defeat Satan with godly responses. He is a ruler of this world. 
But the ultimate ruler must be glorified as, as he is defeated. And he will be. Ultimately, Satan will be defeated, will be thrown in the lake of fire. But until then, as he continues to roam around like a lion, my friends, resist him. Stand firm in your faith. Don't give in. Never take the armor of God off. And trust God. God knows what's best. And that He is in control. (laughs) And He's doing the right thing. Always believe that. So that Satan would not get the victory, but God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You. Uh, the, The Scriptures are so rich. Thank You for giving them to us here. May we just grasp a little bit of what you're trying to tell us here. Of that, this, this glorious truth that you are in control. You are sovereign. And your providence rules through all things. May we understand this and may it bring us great comfort. May, may we believe these truths. May we not fall prey to lies of Satan who is the father of lies. May we understand what he is doing and even he himself is accomplishing your purposes. So may we be a part of those purposes and bring you honor and glory with how we even respond to Satan and and defeat him and resist him. So may your grace truly be sufficient for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.